The following is with Colonel Brian Campbell, a colonel that served in both Iraq and in Kosovo. The following podcast contains images that can be found on our YouTube channel. The link to this YouTube channel can be found in our website description. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dotted Lines podcast. My name is Sam. In today's episode, we are jo- joined by Colonel Brian Campbell, who is uh, currently retired, um, but is still with the U.S. Army Reserves. He also works at Winchester Hospital uh, as an anesthesiologist and works at the uh, Fertility Centers of New England. Brian, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Sam. Um, I'm currently retired fully from the military. And I'm working part-time, I'm almost fully retired from my civilian job as a certified registered nurse anesthesiologist. So Brian, obviously um, being the military is something I would, I mean, from looking at you and, you know, all your stories and everything, I would assume, you know, being in the military encompasses most of your life. So I was wondering um, for people out there that are, you know, maybe debating entering the military, looking towards a career in the military, what would you tell them and what would you suggest? Well, as far as my career went, um, I, I did it through nursing and uh, was in the medical section of the United States Army uh, Reserves. So I spent most of my time in the reserves. However, I did do three deployments, uh, two to Iraq and one in Kosovo. Plus I did a home uh, you know, in the US deployment out to Fort uh, Joint Base Lewis-McChord, it's called now, and that was uh, Madigan Army Medical Center uh, in Tacoma, Washington. So um, I would recommend uh, it as a career and as a re- career in the reserve. So either you go active duty, which every day you put on the uniform and you go and do it as a uh, soldier um, versus the reserve, which uh, uh, humorously they say one weekend a month, two weeks in the summer. (laughs) And uh, my wife will debate that because I spent many months over in Iraq, in Kosovo, and then again at Madigan. So um, it's a a rewarding career. Uh, I am, you know, one of the side benefits is that I'm collecting now a pension that uh, is a non-contributory pension, meaning during the, um, the years you're not getting deducted pay to earn that pension. Mm-hmm. You're giving, you're putting your life on the line to do it, in other words. So Brian, uh, you being in the U.S. Army Reserves, obviously you just spoke about how that's so much different from the reserves versus active duty. What sort of things, you mentioned you go in every other weekend or two weeks a summer. What what would that entail you being in the reserves versus you being in active duty? Um, well, as I said before, Sam, active duty means that, you, you know, every morning you get up, you're in the army or the Navy or the Marines or whatever branch you've chosen. And you go in and you do your job wearing the uniform. As a reservist during the week, I was a nurse anesthetist at Winchester um, or Malden Hospital. I also worked at the Mass Eye and Ear Infirmary uh, and during my career. So 
though every day I got up, I I was a civilian most of the time. Um, and then it wasn't until 2001 where I got my first deployment to Kosovo, um, serving with the peacekeeping forces of NATO uh, uh, during the uh, Serbian and um, Albanian crisis that was done there. So, uh, Brian, my question for you is, you know, you mentioned being deployed to Kosovo. Um, so what was the transition for you from leaving Massachusetts um, to Kosovo? Like, how did they call you? How did they talk to you? And how did you end up getting there? Like, what was the whole process? Well, usually what happens is you get you get orders, um, you, you become aware of going, uh, and then you, you go through uh, pre-deployment training, which may require a little bit more time in the military, uh, you know, wearing the uniform. Then you will get go to a pre-mobilization station, and then you go to your uh, theater of operations. For me, it was a little weird on that one because uh, the mission had changed while I was in training. I was gonna be assigned at uh, Camp Abel Sentry, which was in Skopje, Macedonia, and they had stopped doing surgery. So they said there was no need to send an anesthetist over there. So they said, you're off the, the roster. So I was in the middle of planning a trip with my wife to Ireland when I got a call on the phone that said, are your bags packed? So um, I went from, you know, getting ready to fly to Ireland to packing my bags uh, and reporting to Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, and then, you know, on the first and about eight days later, I was standing in uh, Camp Bonsteel in uh, Kosovo. Do you ever, um, it's more of a, like a, a rhetorical question, but uh, it's not really a rhetorical question, but when at this camp, what is it just like, uh, I've heard from a lot of people that have either been active duty or in the reserves or have any experience on a military base that it's almost like a little town, like a little community. Like there's a little bit of everything everywhere. Yeah, it's, that's correct. But again, it depends on what um, part of the mission that you're coming in on. Here, the initial forces going in it can be very um, barren, very Spartan for you to get in there. Uh, little to you know, no, no showers, uh, no hot food, and that stuff. Um, for me, uh, in in Iraq, I went in, and the, uh, the war had started in 2003. I go in in 2006, so it was a little bit more of a, an established theater. Our hospital had been set up, although we still were operated in some of the temporary um, aspects of a combat support hospital, which are what they call debt meds, which is deployable medical systems, which is a series of tentage and um, like containers that open up into operating rooms and labs and blood bank and such. So we came in on that, but our uh, living uh, facilities were still a little Spartan. We were uh, stationed in Crete in 2006. So we had, um, we occupied the old Iraqi um, Air Force Academy base, basically because they had a great airfield. And when the US goes in, they have great air power. So getting a good airfield is number one on your list. Um, so we occupied that base. And um, since the uh, war had taken out some of the uh, infrastructure there, we were in less than ideal um, housing. 
Um, a lot of it was open barracks that had been separated by plywood um, to make rooms for people. Um, my, the command staff that I was part of, actually, we had uh, what we called the chicken coop, which was basically a plywood hut with uh, four rooms made in the middle. So uh, what was, so we, you mentioned, you'd mentioned this to me before we started today, uh, the difference between um, what your role in CASA was versus you being um, in Iraq with more of almost like a leadership role, like a higher up role. Um, you being in that role, what are some certain, I don't, what are some uh, privileges that you have, but also what responsibilities do you have in a role like that? Well, uh, when I got to Iraq and in, in Kosovo, I was uh, at the rank of a major um, and uh, I was doing missions outside of the camp, uh, taking medical care to some of the villages, um, collecting intelligence and data on health care needs and uh, civil um, things that were needed to go on, water supply, electricity and stuff. How could we help the uh, villages to do that? And that was, you know, hoping to do that old uh, saying, you know, win the hearts and minds of the people. Um, unfortunately, most of that stuff is temporary because, you know, the U.S. never stays for a long time, you know, that they need or they don't commit to the long term. So the facilities don't get rebuilt to new or, or they're not maintained. In Iraq, um, I was a uh, deputy commander for clinical services. I had reached, I was a lieutenant colonel promotable. And in fact, in theater, I was promoted to full colonel. Um, and so I was in charge of all of the medical assets of the hospital, um, disposition of patients. Uh, we created in Tukrit a method of transferring um, our Iraqi patients outside of our facilities to the local uh, Tukrit teaching hospital, um, which about 75% of our patients were of some type of Iraqi um, ethnicity, either they were Iraqi army, police, uh, civilian or insurgents. So we treated them all. You had mentioned that you were not so far from Osama bin Laden's town that he was currently staying in. Uh, uh, not, no, that's uh, Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein, I'm sorry. Uh, Saddam Hussein is town that you were close to. Yeah, um, to Crete, he, um, he used to Crete as to denote his hometown. Uh, to Crete is located about halfway between uh, Baghdad and Mosul. Um, which is one of the large cities in the north, Mosul is. Um, it would be similar to someone saying that, you know, I come from Boston when you actually come from a small surrounding community of Boston, not actually Boston proper. So if I said, hey, I come from Wabin, Massachusetts, where I grew up, people would be like, I don't know where that is. When you say, oh, I come from Boston, Massachusetts, they, they all know. So right. his village was a little bit outside of, Crete, but that's what he called home. So what was that experience like maybe being closer to him than another base would be? Well, um, he was still being sought at, um, and at that point, um, it wasn't until later that they captured him because when I was in 
back in Iraq in 2011, they were actually, uh, I was stationed in uh, Biop or Camp Victory. Biop is Baghdad International Airport, um, which is a, a number of miles outside of the actual city of Baghdad. And um, he was held at our facility in, in Camp Victory prior to his uh, execution. Um, and uh, so uh, then he was transferred to Tikrit where he was buried. That, I, th I think that is so, I mean, I feel, I feel like if I was in your position, I would feel almost relieved that, you know, that we had gotten him, but also so, the fact that you were so close to him, you know, in the same like territory, I think that would scare me more than anything, just because he's such a dangerous man, such a high, like, like is a terrorist. Well, he had um, devout followers and they were the ones you really feared, not him so much. Uh, he really didn't do the stuff, but the people that uh, believed in him and his message were the, uh, are the people you need to fear. Mm. So, Brian, uh, you told me a lot about a lot of your, your hobbies, which I find are super fascinating. So I saw that you are uh, a you're, you're the division champion in trap shooting. Is that correct? Our team was team uh, last year. And that's the Greater Lowell Trap League, <clears throat> which is up here in the northern area of Massachusetts, Lowell, um, Dracut, um Andover, Tewksbury, Billerick, or a lot of those towns in the northern part of Massachusetts, uh, we uh, meet together uh, for trap meets and uh, and do that. Trap shooting is a sport that was developed way back in England. Helped uh, hunters stay sharp. They used to release live birds um, from boxes or traps that they had, and then uh, keep their skills sharp. So they would shoot you know very common birds starlings marlins and stuff like that or pigeons then um it wasn't until the 1890s that they outlawed the shooting of live uh, animals as sport <laughs> uh, in england um it was the 1860s i believe that sport actually made its way over to the u.s um, and we started having uh, official matches in around 1900, and uh, it's just progressed since then. Um, the uh, Amateur Trap Association, which is the largest organization of uh, trap shooters uh, before the COVID pandemic, would have the uh, Grand American out in Ohio, and that would attract upwards of 5,000 shooters all coming in and, and competing. And you compete on different levels because of what your, you know, capabilities are. So how did you yourself get into trap shooting? Um, I became a member of the Lowell Sportsman's Club <clears throat> um, back in 80, 1986, before you were a gleam in your father's eye. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, one of the members there said, oh, you'll love to come out here and shoot trap. And uh, I had my father's old hunting shotgun, which is just not the uh, type of uh, firearm you want to take out to the trap field, but that's what I had. Um, you shoot at 25 targets in a round. I probably hit eight or nine of them in my first few times, but I enjoyed seeing the instant results of hitting a target with it ex exploding into pieces and 
saying, well, I got it. You know, I did that. So it's um, gratifying. <clears throat> it is. And um, in fact, uh, I was interviewed by uh, WCVB TV Chronicle and had a segment in one of their shows on stress busters because um, the distance between the shooting positions is over nine feet. And uh, most people bring their own fire, their own shotguns, their own ammunition. So there's no sharing. So it's an excellent sport to be outdoors, um, compete and, uh, you know, enjoy it without the uh, you know, high risk of COVID. Remaining socially distant. Yes. Yeah. That, I always thought uh, trap shooting was fascinating. I, I completely agree when the, when the pigeon blows up. That's uh, to me, that's like, that's one of the coolest things. It's just the instant, like, it's like scoring a goal or, you know, making a basket. It's just that instant, like I did it. Yeah. And then you have to do it 25 times in a row to be really good. (laughs) So is it a machine that throws it up or will it be someone that throws it up for you? Yes. There's a trap machine. There's, um, uh, it has a carousel in it that loads the clay targets. And, um, right now, um, the reason that, uh, you would hear people when they want to rehab the bird or the target released call pull is because in the old days, they used to have to pull a lever to release the target. Um, now we have wireless calling system. So, uh, as soon as you call out, um, your, whatever word you use to, to call for the target, um, the wireless microphone picks it up, transmit it to the house and it releases the bird. So it's like almost, uh, instantaneous that you call out and then boom, it comes out. So on a competition day, um, you know, like you said, you are, you guys are the division uh, champions. So what does uh, past past year, we're we're, we're starting uh, April for the new season. So hopefully back to back champions, but that's still in in your future. So how does a, like a a match work between two different teams or is it multiple teams like a meet? Um, Generally it's two teams that will compete against each other, two clubs. And uh, each club has at least eight shooters um, some of the lower divisions, we allow 10 shooters per team. There are five stations. There are two lines per uh, each club to shoot. So usually the home team will get up first, shoot a series of 120, at 125 targets, followed by the visiting team get up and they'll shoot the 125 targets. They'll reload the machine and then repeat that uh, second line 125 targets followed by the visitors team second line 125 targets aggregate score will um win the match and very unlikely for uh teams to score perfect rounds but our double a team which is the highest ranking um actually shot 125 out of 125 and uh won the match and only missed three targets that's incredible that's, out that's, of, uh, that's 250 targets they had a 247 that, that's so, so uh, the accuracy um to, for me to me that's uh that's insane that's unbelievable to be so consistent for such a long period of time and not only you being consistent but all your other teammates being consistent that's a that's a feat that's uh that's well, <laughs> unfortunately one of our match their, their matches our double a team um, the last target and the, and the, that round was, uh, missed. So it was a 
124 for that round. Oh. So <laughs> I don't want to be the guy that was the one that spoiled the perfect round. Oh, that that's that must be heartbreaking. Yeah, uh, but I'm assuming. I'm assuming. I know, but 124 out of 125 is still unbelievable. Right. Yeah. So, um, Brian, you mentioned. You know, we we talked. We were talking about your hobbies, and you collect vintage pens. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and what that entails. Um, <clears throat> right. A uh, number of years ago, um, my parents moved out of their house. Uh, actually, my pa- my father had passed away. That was 2001. And we moved out. Uh, I found a couple of fountain pens in his desk. And I initially kept them as keeps, you know, keepsakes. But um, then I started looking at them and was interested in it. I got them refilled and did it. Um, and then started looking at them. That was a Parker 51, which probably was a 1950s vintage uh, pen. And uh, then I started going online, looking up what uh, what I needed to do to get it back in perfect working order because the um, fountain pens have ink sacks in them, which are usually rubberized, some type of rubber material. And those can dry out, crack, and and do it. So you need to have them replaced. Uh, sometimes the writing part of the nib of the pen gets uh, abused or bent and you have to have that fixed. Um, so uh, that piqued my curiosity. I became very interested in the pens. Uh, I collect um, mostly Parker pens. Uh, 51s are very nice, all different versions. There are some everyday pens with stainless steel caps and then they work up to um, gold filled uh, caps with uh, gold ni- you know gold nibs and um, the such so uh, now I uh, you know, collect uh, all sorts uh, Mont Blancs, uh, Pelicans, um, Conklins they're, they're just uh, it goes on and on it does I, I remember uh, not too long ago, I had a student in my math class who had a fountain pen. We were all very fond of his fountain pen, and we were a little too fond of his fountain pen. And the, we were like playing with it. And I must either, I'm not sure if something broke inside or someone squeezed the pen, but I can remember just ink oozing out of the yeah. pen. And uh, it was a little bit of a disaster, and our teacher was not too, uh, too happy with us. Um, I think that desk was stained uh, purple, purplish blue for the rest of the year. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the the ink will wear off eventually, but it, that's one of them, you know, and some of the uh, people are out there. If you go on YouTube and look up uh, videos on it, they'll be proud of the fact that their fingers are almost permanently stained with ink as they repair uh, some of these uh, wonderful instruments of writing. So, in fact, the Parker 51 was uh, well known because the front of the pen covered the nib almost to the tip. So it made it less likely to get ink on your finger. So that was its big selling point. Uh, so, Brian, with your pens, do you have a prized pen, one pen that stands out above the rest? Or? Well, of course, the ones from my father are closest to my heart, but um, I have a, a couple of Mont Blancs that are very, um, very nice, plus a, um, a Cartier one that 
I, I haven't priced it re recently, but it was over $300 when I initially purchased it. And I'm sure it's could be worth more than that. Um, as I mentioned to you today, I was actually on an online um, auction for a vintage collection of pens. Um, I was able to pick up a few, which I thought were from some fairly good price, but uh, several of the pens were going for you know five six hundred dollars for a pen, um, and so that's yeah. <laughs> gives you some good feeling that you'll know that some of the pens you have will at least have some of value mm -hmm. when your wife goes to sell it after you're gone. <laughs> they continue to collect value. She can uh, go to Hawaii. Yeah, with your pens. Um, Brian, I wanted to switch over uh, a little bit uh, back to your career. Um, and you being a certified registered uh, nurse uh, and you working with an anesthesiologist, anesthesiologist um, I was wondering if you could speak on a little bit how you've been impacted uh, during the COVID pandemic. Um, just any anything about the COVID pandemic and being a nurse would be fantastic. Um, <clears throat> well, for, for me personally, it hasn't been the uh, story that uh, it has for uh, others. I have some colleagues that, uh, because I had retired from full-time at Winchester, so when the COVID hit, they uh, I was doing part-time work at their day surgery uh, uh, place, and uh, they closed that down um, because uh, they, they didn't you know, have the capability of running it during the COVID. So I was not working there for uh, a long time and I'm just now starting to get back and get days to go back in and, and work. Um, but I had um, some of my colleagues that I've worked with, they uh, went back even when there was no work in the operating room for them because they weren't doing cases. They volunteered in the intensive care unit, one friend of mine, uh, he went to the uh, Beth Israel uh, intensive care unit where he had worked before he became a nurse anesthetist and uh, he was back there working as a, uh, a nurse in the intensive care unit taking care of patients and he was telling me stories um, they kind of wrench at your heart and stuff because of uh, people uh, you know, the high percentage of people that were really badly affected by COVID were 80 years and older, but there was a cohort of pe people that were younger in their 40s and 30s that were affected and some of them very badly. And uh, he could see that this person was, you know, very ill and it was taking a lot of care and his family couldn't be with him. And, you know, that's a, a young father with with uh, young children to be separated uh, was, you know, something that he really uh, felt uh, that that hit home. I think we, we've so I, we talked. We if you've listened to the podcast before, um, I was, had been telling Brian before about the uh, uh, the previous physician we had on, um, Doctor Morris, and he was talking about some similar things and uh, a lot about uh, mental health and how COVID has affected. Um, people mentally and, you know, what, what emotions may lie. And I think that's a, Brian, you're, that, that story right there was directly like intertwined with what he was saying, where it's, it's like you said, it's heart wrenching. It's something you don't want to ever see someone go through. Right. 
Yeah. So I know you mentioned day surgery, and I'm not 100% sure what day surgery is. So would you mind, you know, talking a little bit about what is day surgery and how that you know, is diff- maybe different from other aspects of the hospital or other care? Sure. I mean, there are a number of procedures that can be done on uh, a one-day basis where you come in in the morning or uh, even mid-morning, um, get set up, prepared for surgery. Um, of course, you you would have tests and stuff done beforehand. And these days, and we now require you know a negative COVID test before you can come in. Um, you, you come in, you'll see uh, anesthesia, you'll meet with your surgeon again, you'll uh, have the preoperative nurses get you ready, start your intravenous line, uh, make sure uh, all the paperwork is in order. Then they uh, move you into the uh, operating room. And um, in fact, this I went through this just uh, last month, I had uh, carpal tunnel surgery, endoscopic carpal tunnel surgery on my wrist. And, um, you know, you go in, the anesthetist uh, took care of me and she gave uh, some sedation, you know, didn't, I remember going into the room and after that, I, all I remember is waking up in uh, recovery and uh, then, you know, uh, seeing that my hand was all bandaged up and they gave me the final instructions and then they called my wife and she came in and I went home. So um, I did the recovery. Now, they do uh, shoulder surgeries, arthroscopic shoulder surgeries. We do arthroscopic hip surgeries. We do a number of, um, uh, you know, ear, nose, and throat type surgeries, uh, you know, like uh, ear surgeries, like uh, tubes for children, uh, tonsillectomies for younger children and some adults, um, and also uh, repairing broken noses, uh, close reductions, they're called, meaning that they don't have to open up any part of your skin to to, uh, fix that fracture. Um, And then we do um, uh, endoscopic sinus surgery. A lot of people have problems with recurrent infections in the sinuses, which are located up in here and underneath your eyes. And they can do that endoscopically by using, um, you know, video camera. They can go in, see, flush out, clean out, do whatever they need to do. and then, um, you know, we wake these, put these patients to sleep. They have their surgery. We wake them up. They go to recovery. And then within an hour or two hours, they're ready to go home. Um, so uh, that's, that's pretty much what day surgery means. You're in in the morning and you're out in the afternoon, if not sooner. <laughs> uh, so if, so for say, example, me, I were to have a, a day surgery and there was maybe not a complication, but you know, there was some worry about me. Would I just go to, so what I'm asking is um, at Winchester, where you are, can you stay over or will they put you somewhere else? Um, It it, it varies. Some hospitals have uh, attached units where it would just be a, you know, a stretch a ride over to another part of the hospital where they would then admit you overnight or for whatever period of time you need to be observed for. Um, Where uh, Winchester has theirs is a separate standalone uh, building. So we would then, you know, contract or contact the the local ambulance company. They would come down and they would do a transfer that way. If you were, um, 
you know, a minor issue that you just needed to have it, you might be transferred up some other way. But uh, normally, if you needed to be transferred up to the hospital, it would be done uh, by ambulance. You would be taken up, admitted through the emergency room, and then you would spend whatever time is necessary in the hospital. Luckily, that doesn't happen that often. It's, it's uh, rare. <laughs> I, you know, it doesn't, it's not very often. I don't know if it's rare, but it's not, it's, it's, it's fair, pretty rare. Yeah. So Brian, as an anesthesiologist, um, obviously people, there's a lot of different things that, you know, well, obviously you work with anesthesia and sedation, but it's a lot of different things um, that you do. So I was wondering a little bit more specific, um, do you do uh, uh, on-site uh, sedation? Like, so for example, like if you're having some sort of finger or something, would you uh, just um, like a shot or uh, some sort, or are you a mask or IV or how does, how, what, what can you do and how does it, that work? It would depend on the type of injury and what the um, surgeon would require. Sometimes the surgeon can do the uh, anesthesia themselves by doing what we call a field block, injecting some type of local anesthetic directly around the base of the finger or in the wrist. And then they would be able to uh, do the repair, such as maybe it was, uh, you know, a, a, a slice of, from a kitchen knife, or you you injured yourself in the workshop, or you put a nail through your thumb, or something. Mm. Those things may be uh, done in the emergency room, uh, where the doctor would just, as I said, administer a little bit of local anesthetic and then remove it. If they feel it needs more work, such as the bones are displaced, fracture of the finger, they now, in the old days, they used to, to band them together and uh, send you on your way or put a <laughs> cast on. Now they will actually uh, put plates and screws. They're almost microscopic sometimes of what they can do there, but they're tiny plates, tiny screws that they will uh, place in the finger to bring it back together so that you don't have some deformity uh, later in, in your life. Um, you'll be able to have a fully functional hand. Um, so again, it would actually depend on the severity of the injury uh, doing that. And sometimes the injury is, uh, even though it might be seen minor, like a wrist or a hand, um, sometimes nerves are involved that need to, to be done in an emergent fashion, meaning that it has to be done right away and you bring the patient directly in and uh, probably put them off to sleep and uh, do it. Um, still could do uh, some type of what we call a regional block versus a field block. A field block would be a very small area. A regional block would numb up maybe an arm, a forearm, a whole arm, a whole leg, or both legs, like a spinal anesthetic. So where you are at Winchester, do you take uh, ambulatory patients? Like, do you take people from ambulances? Or are you more of a you schedule for a certain day and then you, it's almost like a walk-in that way. Most of the cases are scheduled. Most hospitals run on a schedule. Um, so, um, but they're always uh, prepared for emergency bumps. We call them, um, you know, uh, a, a ruptured appendix, a, uh, a ruptured aortic aneurysm, very, very uh, 
critical care case. Um, one of you know sad ones that I had was a, a woman come up from the emergency room directly, uh, bleeding very badly, and uh, you know she was still awake and still knew things, but she did not survive the surgery. So um, you you figure that you know. Uh, my eyes were the last thing she saw in this life. So that's that those are those are hard things to deal with. Uh, and, you know, luckily, they don't happen often. But that's, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a, a major issue in the operating room. Mm. Okay, so this one, first one here is just a, a cross section of a shot shell that you would use during um, is that what you're seeing? Yep. Okay. Um, so it's uh, showing the um, cross-section of what is in, inside the, the shot shell. These are what we would use in trap shooting <clears throat> versus a single bullet. You have, you see uh, where it says shot, mm -hmm. um, that's all those little pellets go out and it gives you a better opportunity because it makes a wider pattern of uh, shot to impact the target. Because it takes about three to five of those small pellets to um, impact uh, the target in order to break it. This is what a trap field looks like. Um, the, the, the little spokes that you see there, those are the, the shooting stations. The uh, things that look like little flagpoles that are standing up uh, are the wireless call boxes. There's a, a square thing further out and that's the trap house which actually throws the targets out into that little bowl shape area that you can see where the the clouds are so i don't know it's if it's obvious but if you look at you can see where some of the trees have been shortened because of the shot going through mm -hmm. <laughs> um this is from uh, a picture of one of the iraqi anti-aircraft uh Bofors 40 millimeter uh, gun um of course, this is uh, after uh, the war, and this was at Al-Assad, which is in the western part of uh, Iraq, um, from when I was there in 2011. That's me in Iraq uh, in 2006. Uh, clicked out of here. Uh, are you seeing that? I, I see. I see your photo of uh, you in yeah. Iraq. All right, let's see if I can, I'm getting another one. Uh, do I still have them or no? I can still see them on the, on the thing. This is the first time I've done screen sharing, so this is why it's- No worries. Uh, well, I can edit this all go? out, so it won't even see, it won't even look like uh, they have any, it looks smooth sailing. Okay, all right, there it is. Um, Let's see what's next. All right, this next one is this one is me sitting on Saddam Hussein's throne. Oh. The throne was given to him by the King of Jordan. Um, this was in the Al Fal Palace in ba uh, outside of Baghdad in uh, what we call Camp Victory. Um, so, <clears throat> is it comfortable or? No, it's not bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. You know, I was probably the eight millionth person to sit in it. So, yeah, um, this is out at Al-Assad and that's looking at the start of a sandstorm that swept over the base. And once it hit, came over those vehicles in the foreground, you couldn't see them. So I initially when I saw that photo, I thought those were clouds. No, that's actually sand. It's a sandstorm going. Um, 
this is one of my other hobbies, which is golf. And this is actually out in Ireland um, at a place called Old Head, which um, is surrounded mostly by the ocean. The only um, real historic aspect is, um, is so, so many miles off the shore of that lighthouse, the Lusitania sank. Oh, okay. Which was the uh, uh, White Star Liner that was uh, uh, part of the start of the U.S. entrance into World War One. Was that know. the? Uh, uh, I'm trying to re remember. It was. It was carrying navigate as a, was transmitting messages across, and it was uh, sank, and it had uh, civilians on it. Correct. And then that's it had civilians. It was. A, it was a actually a passenger liner but it was carrying munitions that were being used for the war effort. So the Germans gave it a, a you know, the okay to sink it. Um, but, you know, there were like 30 or 40 Americans that died on that ship sinking. Mm -hmm. And it started, it, it didn't happen right afterwards because, you know, we didn't enter the war until uh, 1917 and this sank in, I think, 1916 or 1915. So it wasn't till you know, a little bit later that we actually had that happen. Um, but it was the start to the US entering the war. Right, it was a precursor. This is uh, Marine One. This is what carried uh, then President George Bush out to Bonsteel. Uh, he visited us when we were there. And that's me standing next to the... Uh, uh, it's beautiful. a UH-60 um, Blackhawk type uh, helicopter, but anytime the president is aboard uh, any aircraft, it becomes um, Marine One or Air Force One. Um, mm -hmm. That's me and my son. Um, my son is now a captain in the Army uh uh, National Guard, Massachusetts, and he's actually been twice to Afghanistan. Um, another hobby I haven't talked about. This is this is a long, I haven't been in the water in a long time, but this is me <laughs> down in the Cayman Islands, um, scuba diving, which was uh, a lot of fun. Um, this is a setup for an anesthesia machine, including the monitors um, and all of the. Uh, attachments that we'd need to put the patient to sleep in the operating room. So it's, uh, it's come a long way since when I started training way back in the eighties. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's really, uh, amazing how far we've come in anesthesia and the, uh, stuff that we have. Um, this picture is when I, you know, if you look on the, the middle of my chest, you'll see there's a bird there. It's an Eagle. That denotes that I had reached the rank of full colonel. So this is when I was uh, the deputy commander for clinical services in um, Tikrit. And right behind me is the entrance to one of our operating rooms. And to, uh, to the left of the picture, which would actually be off to my right in the picture, uh, it would be our other operating room. We had one that was pretty much dedicated to repairing broken and fractured bones and uh, the other one, we did a lot of the major uh, abdominal surgeries, gunshot wounds to the, in the belly or mm -hmm. um, other parts. So yeah, I didn't want to put any real gruesome pictures in. <laughs> um, 
I, I appreciate that. Uh, let's see what we got here. That's one of our operating rooms in progress. And this is one of the few times that we had so many cases, we had to do one next to another. So uh, in the left foreground of that picture is one uh, team working on a patient and to the upper right of the picture, you can see there's another table and a second patient in the same room. You'd never see that in a civilian hospital, but we were limited on the amount of space that we had. Um, so that was uh, one of the reasons that we would be able to do that. This one is a, uh, another picture of trap shooting. And as you can see, there's five guys up in the line or five shooters. There might be a female in there. I don't want to offend anybody. Um, and they just, um, they're standing at the 16 yard line, which is the closest you can get to shoot the targets. You actually, when you get better, they handicap you by moving you back and you can move back all the way to 27 yards wow. behind the, the target to shoot. So those are the good shooters. Um, let's see what else we got here. Um, so this would be, um, not pretty normal setup of what I would have to get uh, anesthesia ready. Um, in the middle, those silver things are what we call uh, laryngoscopes. Those allow you to look down and the patient's throat and see the vocal cords when you want to pass uh, the the plastic tube directly to the to the left of that uh, of the laryngoscope, which is an endotracheal tube, and then the two other plastic. Um, devices next to the endotracheal tube are um, a laryngeal mask airway and then an eye gel. And those are different than um, endotracheal tubes in that they don't go between the vocal cords. They sit outside of it, but the cuff that's up the, the far end um, occludes the uh, area surrounding it so that you have a direct connection between the machine and the patient's lung. So that's been a very uh, positive uh, development by uh, an English anesthetist, as they're referred to over there, uh, by the name of Archie Brain. And um, he, used, he developed these things by working in his garage workshop at night, putting these things together from dental masks, endotracheal tubes or whatever. And then following that day, he would go into the operating room and stick them in patients. Oh. Something Good. you can't do the, in the United <laughs> States, but something that was perfectly acceptable in the uh, United Kingdom. But thank God he did, because by doing that, he was able to bring us this device. Um, another aspect of my life was being a goalie. So um, that's when I spent my plebe year at the United States Military Academy for Wayward Boys up in New York. And that's our full dress gray uniform with my tar bucket um, and let's see, funny enough, in Iraq, I actually ran into one of my roommates from West Point, uh, that, Colonel, that is cool. Colonel Ali. So that was uh, something unusual. He turned out to be the theater veterinarian where I was the theater nursing consultant. Um, this is me examining a patient in Kosovo in one of our trips out to the villages. We would. Um, get the um, the patients, a little small child there, and listening to lungs because a lot of them would have some type of upper respiratory condition that we would need to uh, you know look at. 
Um, this is outside of the, the hospital and uh, these are some of my close uh, buddies from uh, the military. Uh, to, to my left in that picture is Colonel uh, Quick. Uh, he's also got the white hair. We were, we were actually mistaken for each other over there a few <laughs> times because we were both colonels. We both had white hair. We both wore glasses. And we both had the same type of shoulder holster. So um, they would think they wouldn't know who was who. Then uh, to my right in the picture uh, is uh, a Major Kutlis, who was a pediatric cardiologist, turned out to be one of our great chest surgeons. And uh, to his right is my uh, real close buddy, uh, Colonel Michael Knott, and he was the executive officer for the 399th there. Um, and, uh, you know, we were, we were very close when we were over there. In fact, uh, this is us outside of our office, the XO and the DCCS's office. And you can see it was close to Christmas by the decorations on top of the <laughs> air conditioning units. You gotta keep the, uh, <clears throat> you gotta keep the snowmen cold. Yeah. And then, scene. uh, Here's, here's a, another thing that I've done in the past. That's a beautiful lobster. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you can't see, but it's full of eggs. So it's oh. not a legal lobster to take. So we had to let her go. Um, I have a great buddy that, who uh, has his own pots out down in Duck uh, Situate. And we go out there once in a while to catch lobsters and uh, bring them home. My wife eats them. I am allergic to them. Oh, but only when they're cooked. Okay. This, this actually is a picture of a robotic, uh, surgical machine, the Da Vinci uh, robotic machine. This is actually, uh, in, in a patient right now. Um, and each of the, there are four arms that uh, are controlled by the surgeon who sits at a console that's actually away from the field. And, uh, they, they operate almost remotely. Um, it was originally, they tried to develop it so that um, surgeons in the battlefield didn't have to be on the battlefield in order to do surgery. They could do it remotely um, through these, uh, these machines. Um, never seemed to pan out how it worked, but that's uh, what they did. These are the arms outside of the patient. They bunch them up together so that they don't get contaminated. Um, this would be a screenshot of uh, a patient that I'm taking care of. And you can see um, that's the oxygen saturation. Um, she's got a slow heart rate. Uh, the blood pressure is 107 over 74. Um, and these waveforms give us information on what's happening. And I think... Um, this is uh, at the Cigar Club, the uh, Victory Cigar Club in um, in the Baghdad area, and that's my uh, Sergeant Major, uh, Sergeant Major uh, Rodriguez. He was uh, my right hand guy, and and when I was there in uh, 2011, I also have the uh, privilege of being a uh, editor for this uh, textbook. Uh, chapter five of this textbook is uh, on anesthesia and it was edited by me. I re revised it and updated it and uh, made it um, 
ready for publication. So that was, I think, the 15th edition. And um, it shows you what a true Scotsman should be <laughs> dressed like. So that's, uh, it's hard to see, but that's the actual Campbell plaid. <clears throat> Campbell of Argyle, which is where I'm told our people come from. Mm. One of the aspects of um, being in the military is I was able to receive the Bronze Star for meritorious service, not valor, but meritorious service in a combat zone. I earned one when I was in there in 2006, and I earned a second Bronze Star in 2011. And these are the citations, and um, these you know, these were hanging on my uh, office wall when I lived in Malden. Now I'm in Dracut, and I haven't got them up on the wall yet. Um, plus, um, I have this is my Army saber. <clears throat> that you wear with your dress uniform. Um, it's not not a weapon of war anymore. It's more a dress thing. So um, in around the uh, the centerpiece is the the, the coin I earned in um, Iraq in 2011 from the 804th Med Brigade. And above that to the left is the uh, 399th coin. And to the right of that is the um, it's a coin for the U.S. Army, and below it are the um, First Cav and 25th Infantry Divisions, which I was uh, uh, credited to wear the combat patch for those units, which is something that's really pretty cool. And I think that's oh, that's one last thing is um, it's my wife, my daughter, and my son-in-law. That's uh, she just got married um, back in 2012. Uh, no, she got married back later than that. 19, 2019 or 18, 2018, I think it was. God, I got to go back and look. <laughs> she got married in August. That's all I remember. Now she has two children, so we have five grandchildren now. And um, that's, that's where awesome. I'll end. Well, Brian, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. That was um, really fantastic. I learned a lot, saw a lot. Um, it was really great to get your insight on um, what it means to be in the military, around the military, and uh, how it operates. Um, so with that being said, once again, I want to thank Colonel Brian Campbell for joining us in today's episode of the podcast. If you want to listen to the Dodd Lines podcast, you can find it uh, pretty much everywhere where podcasts are found, Spotify, Apple Music, Breaker, Overcast, and Pocket Cast. We have an Instagram, which is at Dodd Lines Pod, P-O-D. Once again, I want to thank you for joining us. And on, um, on behalf of Drew and myself, uh, thank you, Brian, for joining us. Thank you, Sam, for having me.